Baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered, saying, Permit it, and I, and at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him after being baptized. Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I, in whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading. Children are invited to Kids Church with Kelly this morning. Before we really get into the sermon, Kelly heard me uh, talking with a friend this week. You, you may or may not believe this, but pastors call me for advice sometimes. Just uh, terrifying, isn't it? Um, uh, but it may be an example of what not to do, too. Um, cautionary tales. Uh, but uh, several pastors, at least two or three, reached out to me this week and said, you know, what are you going to preach about this week with the events that happened in Washington, D.C.? And it was until the third one, which is you don't want to be the first one to call me, that I got some clarity on where I was uh, in relation to those things. First, there's, there's things that, that the world would have me say all the time, like we condemn white supremacy, and we went through that with one of the shootings a long time ago, which is like, do I need to say that every time something happens? And everybody was like, no. Um, that we try to be holistic in what we do here, and that's sort of wrapped into that. So uh, the other thing, and this is, this is a little bit of a joke, one of the things I'm also supposed to say if I want my church to grow is tell you to invite your friends to church every Sunday. So also invite your friends to church every Sunday, but I'm not going to say that every Sunday either. And so there's these list of things that we sort of have to work through to do all this. But the, with this um, event, I was trying to, but around the third call, I got this idea that there's uh, the signal and there's the noise. Um, in the sense that like when you're bringing a ship into port, you can hear um, the signal that's trying to guide you to where you're supposed to be going. And then there's all the noise that will pull you off course. And one of the things as a, as a teacher and as a pastor and somebody who speaks in public is you really want to try and make sure you're talking about the signals and not the noise. And so the fact that our world is caught in sin, caught in disruption, caught, caught in patterns of abuse and destruction is something that we try to diagnose every Sunday. That the dysfunction that we saw on Wednesday at the Capitol, I believe it was, or Tuesday, um, isn't something we can just talk about this Sunday, but it's something we're always trying to address. And the challenge is that if I try to set aside, aside today 
to talk primarily about that, I can begin to fall for the noise instead of the signal. And part of it, the challenges with that is all of you, or most of you, have heard 10,000 other opinions upon this, and you have your own. And the benefit I have is getting up here and being able to expound one so that you can say, well, he agrees with me, or he doesn't agree with me. Or has he read this article, or this thing, or that? And so in our desire to stick with the signal rather than the noise, we're going to move forward with Baptism of Jesus Sunday. And out of the scriptures will arise the challenges to sort of handle these things. I had a friend, a different friend this week, ask me how often we talk about politics with our kids. And she's in fifth grade, and I said, I don't want to know who she's going to vote for. Um, or she's five, sorry. Um, but one of the things I said, you know, Rosie earlier in the week was worried about Herod and um, Pharaoh throwing babies into rivers. I said, is that politics? Um, the question being is, yes, it's politics, and, and if you talk about those things, you can begin to inhabit to seeing the own pharaohs and the own Herods in your world and in your time, and not only that, more immediate to you. We don't always have to make all the steps. If Rosie grows up in a world of knowing what tyrants are like, she might be able to recognize tyrants when she grows up. If she grows up in a world of knowing what sinfulness and destruction and patterns of, of um dehumanizing others, and this is beyond what happened on Wednesday, then she can find ways to humanize others. That, that if you talk to your kids about the scriptural world, it will begin to emerge that there are things that are clearly addressing this world. Baptism of Jesus Sunday, what we've heard in Matthew's gospel so far, is that Jesus is born into a world of violence and struggle, a world of tyrants and kings, a world of, of um, um, destruction in many ways, and it mirrors our world. The Magi visit Jesus. This would have been on Epiphany earlier in the week. Um, and they, they say to Herod, there's a king here. And Herod, being a smart king, is terrified because you don't, you're not excited when another king comes around your throne. And he tells them that I want to go and worship him as well, which they cleverly, I don't know if they know it's a lie. The spirit comes to them and tells them, you know, when a king says he wants to come and worship the other king, he's going to kill him, um, which is exactly what happens that these things come out of our world. And so this Sunday, we'll, we'll sort of stick with what we've been doing. Now, many of you know that this is sort of the time we're going to revisit the Sermon on the Mount. This, this is what I've been called, this instructions for building a house. And it's not just your individual house that's addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, but the house of the church that God has called out his disciples at the beginning of Matthew uh, 5 for the Sermon on the Mount. And he instructs them with the surrounding community around them. But one of the things the church in its wisdom practices after Christmas is a, a Sunday to talk about the baptism of Jesus. And at the end of Epiphany season, the season that we're entering, there's a Sunday that, that focuses on the transfiguration. Both events preserved predominantly in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, both those events feature in each of those. And so there's a reason why, hey, once a year, if it's important enough that it's in all three Gospels, let us visit that. But I think it works for our Sermon on the Mount series, too, is that in this first one, what we heard read today is, this is my son whom I love. Um, in the second one, we'll hear, this is my son whom I love, listen to him, which adds a little bit of a instruction to the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this one. 
And I talked about this, I think, last week, but if we come out of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy as we did to the Sermon on the Mount, you can begin to see Jesus as this new Moses who goes up on a mountain and re-expounds the law to these people so that they can live in that way. But what we can miss if we do that, fault of the preacher, um, but most of us know this, is that he's also the son of God who goes up on that mountain and speaks these words. The authority isn't just in that it's a pattern of one that has come before that stands with the, the pattern of the uh, prophets and Moses, but it also is an authority that comes from him being the one who the Spirit descends on over the waters when the heavens open. The reason I think that's important is... Um, uh, we talked about, it's funny, C.S. Lewis twice in a week. C.S. Lewis had this idea that people would call Jesus a great moral teacher, and they're wrong because he either has to be, what, a liar, a lunatic, or lord. Um, the hard part about, like, seeing the Beatitudes as Jesus being a great moral teacher is where we get the idea of, uh, where Marx gets that idea of, of that religion is the opiate of the masses. That if you're just telling people, hey, more now, for you shall be comforted. If it's only just Jesus as a great moral teacher, there's no good news there. If he hasn't been on the other side of this, if he hasn't been the one who is with God, who descends from God to be with us, who knows how things turn out, it sounds like him telling you to just put your nose down and ignore the circumstances that are. Now, that is not the Christian message, but Marx, I think, sort of correctly saw that if we're just saying like, hey, this life may stink, and maybe you'll get some treasures in the next life. It becomes this way of sort of um, putting people in a place where they don't question why what is, is. But even more than that, I think Marx uh, is right because if we lose Jesus as a great moral teacher rather than as Lord, what he's saying isn't true. This is where Lewis's uh, liar, lunatic, and Lord somewhat plays. This is probably in the lunatic portion of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If he's just a great moral teacher and not the incarnate Son of God, then he's just lying or just making up things. That there is in him this knowledge of this eschatological real world, not a fake world, this last time's world, that will come to be. And we can, we can lose that inside of, okay, Marx is right, all we need to do is action. That's not the Christian life. Okay, he's a moral teacher. All we need to do is just trust, and, and that, that misses it too, that Jesus is speaking of a new world being born. And that's what the Isaiah reading um, that Shelley read mentioned for us too, is that these things have happened, but a new thing is coming, that in Christ, new creation comes on earth. And so we're, we're entering into this, this story again, Matthew's gospel, with the baptism of Jesus, in which he, uh, John, has just announced, preceding this, that one is coming after me, um, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am unworthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. The immediate next verse says, then Jesus came from Galilee. That's the preceding material. In each of the four synoptic gospels, the following material, or three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the following material is him going out into the wilderness to do battle with evil. 
as he comes, as John has pointed to him in the pattern of the Old Testament, and he receives his divine identity from God, he is pushed, and in Mark's gospel it says he's uh, cast out in the same phrase that is used for casting out demons. He's cast out into the wilderness to confront the incarnate version of evil. If you don't think there's something for Christians in receiving our baptisms and which pushes us out into the neighborhood of chaos, we're missing something. As we receive our baptism, we're pushed into the neighborhood of chaos. Not armed with just our own strength, but now called and given the Spirit of God. And so that's sort of the situation in which this baptism in these Gospels occurs. The, this is a, a, is a graph I love. Um, uh, it's just, I think it's just beautiful from the get-go. But um, those are uh, all the cross-references within the Bible. So Genesis on one end, the New Testament on the far right, and this is where references from one goes to the other. And I love the way that there's the beginning and the end have this sort of uh, um, parabola. Is that the right word? Wait a minute, Joey, you just finished college. Yes, uh, this arc. <laughs> Um, and then uh, it's going to get worse, Joey, so hang on. Um, and then there's little ones in between that sort of build this story for us. Jesus' baptism scene is like peak version of that. And I just want to talk about a couple of them. First, um, Jesus goes out, uh, we'll start with Genesis because that's at the beginning of this graph, is that the voice comes over the waters. In Jewish cosmology or, or ways of thinking about the universe, that there, the creation is called out by the word of God to bring order to that which is disorder. That, that Jesus becomes this one who goes into the watery chaos. Um, and early church art captivates this well with um, sea creatures sort of surrounding him as he gets into the water um, and brings sort of order out of that. The, the second is that Jews um, historically understood the Exodus towards the front of this graph as the moment when they pass through the waters that they are adopted by God. Jesus enters these waters and hears that you are my son. That in, we too, when we enter the waters, in Paul's language, are adopted by God too. That in through passing through the waters, we're brought into this. Going back to Genesis, there's uh, Tertullian, an early church father, talked about the dove that descends. And he said, so as the dove descends to Noah in cleansing the world um, and their deliverance from the flood and cleansing the world from unrighteousness, so that the dove descends on Jesus in his cleansing the world of sin and destruction. That we, this scene is just like, it's a small scene. And, and all of scripture, as you can see from the image, is sort of hyperlinked like this backwards and forwards and such. But this is, um, this one has so much of it. The psalm we read this morning talks about the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord from Brian. And it's the psalm that sort of orders creation and breaks logs and brings out in the world. And it is the voice of God that speaks at Jesus' baptism. There's another one in the Psalms that's heavy is, is that you are my son. It's picking up this idea that the Davidic line will be renewed someday. 
And it's often spoken of that Jesus is this one. And so this adoption language that you are my son is to set him up as that king whose throne will have no end in Old Testament language. Isaiah's suffering servant motif comes into this one as well, is that he is, um, by getting baptized, we'll talk about this in a moment, but why does Jesus get baptized? In some sense, he's taking on the infirmities of those who have been baptized, that Jesus goes and takes on the struggles of what um, has happened. In the, in the reading that Shelley um, read for us this summer, it also names um, it later in Matthew's gospel, it uses the phrase too, that he doesn't make a show of himself, but a bruised reed he will not break. That he's somehow coming into this world in a different way to proclaim justice, not in the heavy-handed way that we would often prefer that justice is proclaimed, but in a more mysterious way than that. There's this tension, I think, um, between John's vision of he comes with the Holy Spirit and fire, and he comes right after that, is anointed with the Holy Spirit, but he's um, al- um, trying to uh, alighting. The, the Holy Spirit alights him. He is the one who sort of becomes fire. So if you're listening to John with Old Testament prophets in your mind, you're like, he comes with the Holy Spirit and fire to toss everybody else into the fire. And this is part of the challenge but talking about anything today is it's always other people that get tossed into the fire. It's never like, I hope it's not me, um, which is worth thinking about. But the, uh, the idea that um, John sort of is confounded in this moment too. He does come, and the fire is an alighting on him rather than one that goes out in consumption so far. There's another one which isn't so much as captured on this graph, but it's an image of the Trinity, that there's this voice of the Father in heaven. If somebody says, this is my son, it doesn't, the assumption is the, the Father thing, which is a po- prominent pattern in Scripture. And, so, and, and then the Spirit that descends on Jesus. This is probably one of the earlier depictions of the Trinity. And it's not, um, not lost on us, hopefully, that Matthew's Gospel ends with going forth and baptizing the nations and teaching them all that I've commanded you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that this sort of image is tied up here. So the point of this sort of short start here is that there's a lot wrapped up in what's going on here. This is, this is the text. It actually fits on one slide today. But there's so much that you could throw out and talk about just from what this one scene talks about. And so Jesus then comes to John and Galilee, and he says, I need to be baptized by you. Um, and do you come to me? That's what John says to Jesus. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And what Jesus replies back is, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. There's this way in which I think we, like John, um, uh, the, the gospel later says that Jesus came to serve, not to be served that we think that our calling in life is to, is to somehow always be busy and serving Jesus when, in fact, Christ comes to serve, not to be served. And there's a way in which we become his hands and feet, his helpers and those who are active in the world on his behalf, but it's not because of any extraordinary need on his part. We act as if God is in need. John's resistance here... Um, 
I need to be baptized to you by you and you come to me as sort of this way in which I need to serve you, um, not the other way around. And Jesus says that this is to fulfill all righteousness, which is a complex sort of uh, phrase that sort of comes out in two ways. One is, um, but we'll get to that in the next section, sorry. Um, Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, which is this Isaiah motif that the heavens will be opened, that God would rend the heavens and let him, his, his kingdom loose on earth again. Um, and so Jesus here, uh, as he comes up out of the water, the heavens are rend, and at that moment, the heaven was opened, and the Spirit of God descending like a dove enlightened him, and a voice came from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love, and I am well pleased. This enactment that Jesus goes through um, is one that names him clearly for us in the world. It's this, uh, uh, the phrase of the season I said is epiphany, and that's why it goes at the start. And in, John's, or in, in Matthew's gospel, it says, this is my son, and it's more of a public proclamation than it is in Mark and Luke. There's this notion that he is, he's sort of adopting this one in public for others. Now, there is no adoption going on here. That is an, uh, an ancient church heresy. But it's, it's, it's a proclamation of, for us, that this is the one whom God's spirit will rest on as he goes into the world. But the last thing I wanted to talk about today is why does Jesus need to get baptized? Now, this is one of the hard parts in, in the early church history because what does John the Baptist announce? A baptism for the forgiveness of sins. I think one of the first things I learned without, about Jesus, which I have no idea why, was that he was without sin. I think of reasons why, but it's interesting. It's one of the first things I remember learning is that Jesus was without sin. Then why does Jesus go and get baptized? A baptism for the forgiveness of of sins, for repentance. What's going on here? And it's, it's one of these, as it's preserved in all three of these Gospels, most of those tend to make it into the creeds, but this is still sort of an embarrassment even by the time that the creeds are coming together. How does this work out that Jesus is one who goes and gets baptized? He gets in sort of the dirty water and the muck where other people have been getting baptized. He gets into that place. And so why does Jesus go forward with this? And again, if we had designed um, how God would rescue us in our infinite wisdom, it would be more like a, um, a passing steamship that's saying, get on, than it would be like, I'm in this with you. Um, I don't think I would design a system where Christ comes near and touches us as much as he says, come on, jump out of this. Get out of that mess. And so this is uh, the hardest thing when you're an artist, they say, to draw our hands and feet a true story and evidence on the screen to confirm, although not exactly an artist. Um, toes. How many toes? I, it's like Charlie Brown. It's kind of like a, a lots of... Carla, shh. Um, Jesus gets into the waters of baptism. And the question is why. And I think there are two ways in which that works. This, it gets better. Um, the first is, is that Christ takes on our infirmities. We talked about that earlier. That in some sense, as Christ as a sponge, as he gets into the waters, absorbs the sickness of the world. 
This is, this is prominent in many sort of atonement theologies, theories of the cross, is that it is Christ that absorbs our sin. It is Christ who takes on the unrighteousnesses of, of us so that we um, uh, can be called sons and children of God, sons and daughters of God, that Christ takes those things on. And so a bit in that sense, the image would be, is Christ is like a sponge as he gets into the waters. And one of my ways we talk about this as we get to Good Friday is that, is that Christ really does take on the destructions that we see around us. It's almost as if those things um, become defanged in Christ, taking them on and then bursting forth from the grave is that they begin to lose their power to say that this is how far they go. They don't go further. That Christ takes those on. Now, um, I think I was talking to Brian earlier this week. In, in St. Athanasius and on the Incarnation, he uh, uses the analogy of what happens when you see kids playing with a lion. Um, you would assume that the lion is dead. For Christianity, um, he's saying that as we play around death, which is what the world was accusing the early Christians of, of being too comfortable with death, being able to go into the catacombs, being able to um, touch uh, their martyrs and come close to dead bodies. He says that the assumption would be that then death is dead. Christ, in taking on the watery chaos of death and destruction, disarms it. And this, again, is where that moral teacher thing will fail. Because Christ really needs to do that, and we, in some sense, really need to believe it for that to be true. To be able to go into the world in that way is what sets us apart. Uh, the theologian uh, Walter Brueggemann will talk about existing in economies of scarcity and how we might be able to exist in economies of abundance. For Christians to go into the world um, penny-pitching and counting everything is sort of an offense to the gospel. That we go into a world that sees God's bountiful action and says, where can we um, share this? Where can we expand this? Where can we make this alive in the world? Not just going to, to count it all. The second, which I could not, I'm not even going to do the drawing, um, we'll go to the quote on the back of the bulletin. Um, the second way in which Christ is baptized, and this quote I've thought about for a long time. There's many versions of it. Christ is baptized in water not to be made holy by the water, but to make the water holy, and by cleansing to purify the waters which he touched. For the consecration in Christ involves more um, significant consecration of the water. I used to think, what does that mean? And maybe some of you figured it out already, but I thought about it for a long time, and it finally came to me this year as, as Kelly was reading a, a, a new Bible that um, I'd gotten her for Christmas in one of the notes, is that Christ, um, instead of being infected by the water, absorbing it like a sponge, actually bleeds out his life and holiness to it so that the water itself becomes holy and consecrated. So in the one way, um, in the first way, in the sponge way, it enables us in some sense to see that Christ is taking upon our sickness. And sometimes we leave Christianity there, I think. But what actually also happens is that Christ enables us and breathes out his spirit, brings his holiness, concentrates the water so that when we too are baptized, we are invited into God's presence and God's holiness so that we hear the voice of the Lord, that this is my son or daughter whom I love. 
Christianity doesn't just work in subtraction. And I would say that for a lot of my life, that was the easiest way to conceive of it. God takes away things. But Christianity also works in addition to. God makes it more than what it was before. We are invited into God's righteousness as well. That's perhaps the center of the Sermon on the Mount, this better righteousness which we are invited into. And so the first one, let's say, is grace, and the second one perhaps is, is righteousness. And what's the tie between them? And I, the analogy that, that came to me most clearly um, as I was reading this week was that of a, of a wedding ceremony, that in your baptism, you are performing the act that makes it so. These two become one flesh. And that's in marriage. In your baptism, you are becoming that which God has called you. That happens in, in sort of classical Christian theology. In marriage, the act is performing it. It is now true. You can desecrate the act, but it's what you are now as because of you got married. And so when we baptize in the act, we become that. But the second thing that's happening in marriage is we promise things to forsake all others, to, um, to be in fidelity, um, to remain in that place. And so that's the second aspect of this, is that Christ in his, his um, infusing us with righteousness enables us to live out the promises we make. And I've been married uh, a while, not that long, not as long as some of you, but I can tell you that that call into what I was, I was promising on that day and what I, um, how I lived it out is filled with grace as well. For Kelly and for I, we've both had grace with one another in the ways in which those promises were not lived up to. In sickness and in health, she's much better at caring for me in sickness than I am, and she is, than I am for her. Um, and so we have these spots in which we make these promises. Uh, in baptism, you're asked often to forsake things. You f forsake Satan and all his works is one of the questions. Um, we make these things, we perform these things, we become these things, and yet God has grace for us along the way. And so, like Jesus, as we've been received into what God has done in our lives, we are driven into the world. It's not just the desert or the wilderness um, where Christ remains faithful, where Israel failed. But it's a world in which we are called to live that sermon which we'll return to next week. To live and build our house upon the rock instead of upon the sand. Aided by the Spirit of God and the voice that proclaims to us over the waters that this is my son or daughter in whom I am well pleased as we follow Christ in the world. Let us pray. That we become witnesses to what you have done in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we take in and ponder and hear how your Son 
didn't bypass us on his journey in the world, but got into the waters of baptism. Takes on our infirmities. Takes on both the sins that we commit, but also the sins committed to us as he becomes a healer for us. God, may we, may we hear what it means that your son is with us. And that life as it touches us all touched him as well. And God, may your righteousness flow into us from there. As this baptism was enacted in Jesus and baptisms have been enacted for us, may we hear that you also bleed into us your spirit that you give us the empowerment and the tools to live righteous lives in the world. That as we, too, meet our wildernesses and our trials and temptations, that the identity that we have bestowed by you gives us the, the power and the, the resources to resist, to proclaim the goodness in which you are enacting. So, God, we ask for your grace, too. As we become participants in your story, may you gentle us and restore us and forgive us as we go about that as your church here on earth. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.